For service members or civilians aboard the nation's ships and planes, nothing is worse than a culture of assault, bullying, sexual harassment. Yet those were widespread on the craft operated by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. My next guest set about fixing a toxic culture. Now she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn is director of NOAA's Commission Corps and director of its marine and aviation operations. And she joins me now. Rear Admiral Hahn, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So what was going on when you took over? I mean, what kind of reports were you getting and what was NOAA trying to do here? So we're getting reports from across our workforce of bullying, harassment, behavior, and we united with our workforce to figure out what was going on, why it was going on, and what we could do as a team to address it. And really what we're aiming for and what we've been working towards is a respectful workplace. So Everybody can show up and feel safe physically, mentally, emotionally to do the taxing job that we ask them to do and that the nation depends on. And let's back up for a moment. The Commission Corps at NOAA is a uniformed type of force, and it mans the, uh, or crews, I should say, is the modern word, the vessels that NOAA operates. Tell us about the extent, the number of people, and how it all works, and how it comes to be a uniformed service. So the NOAA Corps is one of the eight uniformed services in the United States. And our primary responsibility is to operate NOAA's 15 ships and soon to be 10 aircraft. Um, We work alongside our civilian counterparts that are professional mariners and civilians, the engineers, the stewards, the deck department, the mechanics, the technicians. So as a team in this workforce, we prepare the ships and aircraft, we operate them, and we make sure that we're collecting data for the nation that informs everything from fishery quotas each year to hurricane forecasts. And these people are trained by NOAA or are they from the Maritime Academy? What's their background to get to NOAA as a Commission Corps member? So we have a very diverse workforce. We have the NOAA Commission Corps. We have a total of six personnel systems. We have five unions, so five collective bargaining agreements. And we come from all corners, all sectors. So Everything from experience in the maritime commercial fleet to fishing vessels to maritime academies to prior government and private sector work. Um, Our workforce literally comes from every corner of the nation, and we come together in these unique environments to operate our ships and aircraft. And how many are there of you? We have just over 330 officers, and we have just about 400 professional mariners. Overall, we have over 1,000 people in our workforce, but the people who actually go to sea and fly the aircraft um, are about 600 at any given time. So it's a pretty small workforce compared to the, you know, Coast Guard or the Navy or something like that. So a few bad apples can really kind of hurt the whole bushel then, can't they? Absolutely. So it's a small workforce, which to your point can have really detrimental impacts within an operational unit, within a ship, within an aircraft, within an operational center. The good news is we're a small team, so we are nimble, and that's really played to our benefit in making these workplace improvements is that we can come together as a team. We train as a team in person. We have these conversations in person, and that's really driven the change. Give us a sense of the timeline. When did all this take place? When did these reports come in, and what was your job at the time, or was it the job you have now? So it was actually two jobs ago. So I was the chief of staff for Marine and Aviation Operations. Rene really started to get the sense of what was going on and working with the workforce to understand why it was happening, where were the impediments to the process and addressing what was going on. And then followed that through my time as a deputy director and then now the director. We've really 
you know, kind of taken this bull by the horns and tackled it aggressively, I'd say, for the last five years. Sure. And just give us a little bit more sense of what it was that was going on. Was it primarily sexual assault? Was it simply bullying male, female, both ways? I mean, what was actually going on? So I don't know if the word fortunately is the right word, but this was pretty much in the realm of harassment, bullying. We weren't seeing assault. I think there have been one or two assault cases in that timeline. But, you know, it was everything from hazing when new employees would come on board to, you know, longstanding employees who would make people, scientists or our own crew feel uncomfortable, be limited in the way they could perform their job. So we really tackled this at the grassroots. It starts everything from how we welcome new employees or visiting scientists on our platforms to what type of jokes are appropriate, right, to make people feel included on the team. And then certainly, you know, touching of any kind is not allowed and not permitted. So we've really, you know, tackled this from every corner. Um, And we call it respectful workplace because that's where it all starts is how people treat each other day in and day out. And when that's left untended, that's what results in the harassment and the assault. So we've really tackled it at the grassroots, knowing that that left unchecked is that chain of events that we're also familiar with in the operational world that leads to a devastating impact. We're speaking with Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn. She's director of the Commission Corps and director of Marine and Aviation Operations at NOAA. And she's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And according to the citation for your award, you also got rid of a few people. You took them right out of there and kind of cleaned up that way. We have. So when we set about really addressing this aggressively, we recognized three main pillars we had to address. First, with training, we had to make it very clear to people what was tolerable and what was not tolerable. And that started with our training, not showing people PowerPoints or videos, but we actually did case studies based on cases that occurred within our work environment, within our workforce. We did training in person. We had really uncomfortable conversations with people to understand what the problem was and how were we in the situation that we were and make it really clear what was and was not tolerable, what levels of conduct were expected. We also work closely with our managers to make them understand they had a role in this. If someone brought an allegation to them, it wasn't a choice to pass it on or not. They have an obligation to bring it forward and we have an obligation to investigate it. The third pillar was investigation. So at the time, we didn't have a way to thoroughly and quickly look into allegations. We do now. We have a contractor assigned to us. He's a previous FBI investigator. He's very experienced in operational environments. So he's required to be on scene 48 hours from notification when we ask him. Um, And he's done that several times. So there's something occurring on a ship and you pull into the dock and he's there waiting for you. He is going to find out what's going on on that ship or in that workplace. And then we're swiftly going to take personal actions. And to your point, sometimes that's involved removal. Sometimes that's involved pretty significant suspensions, but if you are not following the rules of our conduct, there will be consequences, and that's very well known within our workforce. And the unions generally go along with this because sometimes they can be a resisting force to that kind of change. We've done this in partnership with the union, so we've been clear from the beginning what the challenge is, what the goal is, and that the workforce has been part of this change. You know, we have not kind of dictated them what to do because that would not be successful. We've had them be owners in what does a respectful workplace look like? What is their role and responsibility in that? How are they going to affect that change? So they have been active participants and 
the unions want a good workplace for their members. You know, they have an expectation. We have an expectation. So we have that in common. And how do you measure progress in an area like this? Is it simply fewer reports or are there other ways to tell maybe mission effectiveness improves in some manner? That's a really good question, Tom, because just having less reports is not a good indicator, right? That can mean people are scared to report. That can mean they are fearful of retribution and reporting. So we've looked at this in a few key ways. Number one, we actually expected an increase in reporting when we put the proper structure in place. And that's exactly what happened. We had more reporting. You know, in the last few years, the number of reports have gone down. But what's really important with the number going down is what is the severity of reports coming forward? And what we're seeing is people are coming forward in much lower level actions. So at the beginning of that chain of events, they're coming forward and having conversations and expressing concern at a much lower level. That's key. The number alone is not key. The level of reporting, when people are reporting and what they're reporting is key because one They feel safe reporting it. They know something's going to happen. You know, something will happen with those allegations. I've also looked at safety. So I've told our workforce, there is nothing more impactful to safety than a respectful workplace. We're flying airplanes into hurricanes. You know, we're operating ships in the Bering Sea with 40-foot waves. Not having good communication among your crew is the most threatening thing to safety. And we're already doing dangerous work. We can't have this be present. So I've tracked safety trends, safety numbers. We do our own fleet inspections. So I talk to the chief of that division frequently. I say, what does it look like? What are your inspectors seeing? Is the crew all participating? Do they know their systems? Do they feel safe to operate those systems and tell you if they have concerns? And the answer has been yes. So we've seen a significant change in our safety posture, both in numbers and how the interaction of the crew has expanded. So I watch it in several mediums. I talk, you know, the leaders on our ships, like, you know, do you feel like you're empowered to take action? If someone brings you an allegation of a bad apple, you know, to use your words, do you feel empowered to make a decision, whether that's bringing a ship to port immediately, removing that crew member from your ship, taking personal action? And they say, yes, they absolutely do. So there's several factors that I keep very close tabs on to make sure that our plan is working. Our plan is having a positive result. Do you ever wish you could be underground boss and kind of spend a couple of days or something in one of the units or aboard one of the planes and just kind of observe? Of course, most of them would probably recognize you. Yeah, I do. Sometimes I get to spend some time on a ship or, you know, visit our centers, but I do wish I could more, you know, to make sure that I'm staying connected with the hard work that people are doing every day. There's a lot of sacrifices. People are away from their families for months and months at a time and You know, they're making a lot of sacrifices to collect this data for the nation. So it's always important for me to stay grounded and realize, you know, what the challenges are that they're facing, what the sacrifices are that they're making and how committed they are to collecting this data. Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn is director of the Commission Corps and director of Marine and Aviation Operations at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me. I appreciate the conversation. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, 
And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the, and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. 
So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.